0: Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written three dozen cookbooks. And here's something you may not know. We have a TikTok channel called, yes, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. There's actually a TikTok channel now in which you can see all kinds of cooking videos. Most of them right now are all about air frying, Mm. because we're all about air frying. But check us out on TikTok. We would love to make friends with you there. But this episode of our podcast isn't about TikTok or air frying. Instead, it's about grandmother cooking, mm. and it includes our memories of our grandmother's cooking. We want to share a one-minute cooking tip with you. Then Bruce has an interview with Carla Salonari. She's the author of Abuela's Plant-Based Kitchen, and we want to talk about what's making us happy in food
1: this week. So let's get started. It's nostalgic to think about family dinners, right? Your grandma cooking. Usually we think about Thanksgiving. We think about the holidays. Somewhat. And, you know, but grandmothers... Not me. me. Well, Well, I just want to stop.
0: (laughs) I don't think about the holidays, really. I mean, the holidays were a big rush in my family. It was a huge German immigrant family. And they were just this giant, overwhelming, uh, what do I want to say, nightmare of people. I mean, it wasn't a nightmare. We had a good time. But, I mean, it was just thousands of people jammed into my great aunt's house or one of my great aunt's houses. Um, so, it, I don't remember that. What I remember is that I spent most of the summers with my grandparents. Yeah. And that's the cooking I remember. And you, well, let's start there. The so,
1: what was that like? I mean, that cooking. What do you remember of that cooking from now? First of all, this is your mother's parents, right? This is this my is mother's parents. parents. Your maternal grandparents. Correct. And what kind of cooking was done there, and what do you really remember about it?
0: Well, I remember very much a lot of fried chicken. (laughs) I remember very much my grandmother killing chickens when I was a kid and frying the chickens, killing them the day before. I remember all of the kind of farmhouse cooking that would go on. My grandmother no longer did this by the time I was a kid, but when she was a kid they would have what she called threshing days. And these are days when migrant workers would come through the farms and help with the harvest. Uh, This was a grain farm, an alfalfa, oats, wheat, et cetera farm. This is a grain farm in Oklahoma. And uh, she remembers threshing days when they would cook for all the threshers, we would say migrant workers now, who would come through. But still, she still cooked like that. And she herself, my grandmother, was a baker back in the days when elementary schools had bakers.
1: That's quite a career, baking in an elementary school. It's hard to even
0: remember that that this happened, but she would walk to this elementary school in Oklahoma City at 6 in the morning. It was about four blocks from their house. She would walk down there, and she would, if they were, let's say, having hamburgers, she would bake all the hamburger buns. She would bake cakes, all of that from scratch at the elementary school. Isn't that crazy? If they were having sandwiches for lunch, which they did sometimes, they'd have turkey sandwiches which is she would bake the bread for the sandwiches when she in the morning when she got in it's in, it's just like this incredible idea that there was a baker actually baking in an elementary school so you school. had a
1: good baking experience as a kid my mother's mother never baked a sweet thing or even a bread in her life yeah,
0: mother's mother didn't like sweet things no
1: she didn't like sweet things she liked bread but she went to the bakery and she bought rye bread and she bought bagels now, i, I was... want to
0: say that your aunt would highly disagree with this and say that your <sighs> grandmother or her mother was an excellent that, baker. Yeah, that
1: was my father's mother. She agrees that she was not a good cook, and she wasn't. Everything was the chicken was always baked covered, so it was soft and gummy, oh, oh, and oh. lots of oh, no. you know oh, sweet no, and sour no, no, meatballs. No, no, oh, now no, she no. made excellent chicken soup with the feet floating in it, and she made good gribness, which is fried chicken skin and <laughs> onions. God. She made heart attack on a plate. Decent chopped liver, but outside of those classic Jewish food things, she really didn't cook. Very well, and I mostly remember a lot of jello oh and-
0: well, okay grandmother made my maternal grandmother made a lot of jello we had a lot of jello salads and in the South we always say how do you know if it's a salad or dessert and the question is whether it has marshmallows in it so' it what- has marshmallows <laughs> it's a salad if it has marshmallows it is a dessert if it doesn't have marshmallows it's a salad and she would make these jello salads with mayonnaise oh, and celery and canned God. olives oh it was it that's, was the 60s that's
1: yagoya food and right there. It- <laughs> It probably is your goyish. Now, first you. of all, my grandmother was making co-gel with the kosher gel. Yeah, it, now mine was Which is made with fish gelatin, not your beef gelatin. But was it done in a mold or was it just done in a bowl and scooped out? Uh, my grandmother's? Mm-hmm. It was done in a mold. In a mold. No, my grandmother was just in a bowl and scooped out. That was And then oh. covered in Cool
0: Whip. This is getting off the subject, but when I was a kid, my mother would make jello in a sheet pan when I was sick, and cut it into cubes and put them in a bowl and pour milk over it, and somehow that was sick food. Um, I know it's kind of gross. My grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, she was a really good cook, and she but she cooked very old fashioned. She cooked. You know the starch and the vegetable right. and the Jello, and the whether it was pot roast, what we call pot roast, which was chuck roast, or fried chicken, or baked chicken, or baked turkey, roasted turkey, all those things. That, that's the kind of stuff that she made, and she always had. Bruce knows the story. She always had a crock pot vessel under the kitchen sink, and it was full of potatoes, new potatoes, mm-hmm. tiny little potatoes, and she would boil them and then coat them in salt. I mean, just coat them heavy in salt. I put them in this crock and it would sit under the sink. And at any given moment, you could go get a potato and salt out of the crock and have it as a snack. It was a,
1: it was a thing. Well, both of my grandmothers were not very good cooks, but the one we were talking about that would make the gummy chicken... Mm-hmm. Now, yes, my aunt thinks that she was a good baker, and it is true. She made an apple cake that was absolutely delicious, and we actually put that recipe in our book, The Ultimate Cookbook, and I make it a lot still. But that was about the only thing she baked that was good. She had these cookies that... Basically, it was flour and spry mm, and sugar, nobody, and that was nobody it. knows what spry, spry is. Spry is just Crisco, but right. it was like the old-fashioned shortening. And I mean, they were fine, but they were hard little rocks. And the only way you could eat them was to dip them in your tea. And oh, tea! So tea at their house was like you'd line up all the teacups, and then you'd put <laughs> one tea bag in the first, and you pour the boiling water in as you lift the tea bag out, and then you go to the next <laughs> cup, and you go and. <laughs> By the time you got to the eighth cup, there was basically, all you had was water. This is
0: the dead opposite, (laughs) and I want to say that this is the dead opposite of now I'm at my paternal grandparents, at my paternal grandparents. Mostly, interestingly, my grandfather cooked, not my grandmother, Mm -hmm. uh, in in my dad's family. And my grandfather would make breakfast every morning and the way he made coffee is he would take, <laughs> I don't even know how much, let's say eight huge heaping tablespoons, and I don't mean measuring spoons, I mean like the big spoons you use for soup, tablespoons of coffee in a saucepan, he would fill it about halfway with water, and then he would boil it oh. for, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 oh. minutes, and then str- Reduce it too. strain it into cups. <laughs> and it was so strong, it was Unbelievably, your spoon, the minute it hit. The surface of the liquid would disappear because it was uh, no light could penetrate. Oh, this I thought liquid. maybe it melted. No, it dissolved. No in the light it could <laughs> penetrate the liquid. It was so strong. Oh my God! And he was a big my and then now we're on my paternal side. They were big uh, <laughs> bacon fat people. Mm. I mean, it was always frying the eggs in the baking bacon, frying the eggs in the bacon, and then he would take the toast and put it in the bacon fat mm. in the. He used to griddle. And he would put the toast in the bacon fat on the griddle to get it crunchy. Sounds good to me. Toast it in a toaster and then put it on the
1: griddle in bacon fat. I wonder what cinnamon toast would taste like oh. with bacon fat instead of butter. Oh no, no, no. Gross. <laughs> cinnamon Gross. sugar and bacon and fat. They would they love they love fat of
0: all kinds. They would take what they called and dressing and he they would make, she would make the dressing. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, would make the dressing, southern dressing with cornbread. You know, you make the cornbread. A couple days before, so it was good and stale, kind of rock hard, so that it absorbs liquid properly. It didn't get mushy. So you make the cornbread ahead, then you crumble it up, and then you saute I don't know onions and celery and stuff like that, garlic maybe. I don't remember garlic. Remember I mean, I, that seems out of the question. In butter, and you mix it with eggs and mix it into that stuffing, and then they would put that in a nine by thirteen pan and set the chicken right on top of it mm-hmm. and roast it. So. All of the chicken fat would seep <laughs> down into that Yum. dressing as it cooked. Oh, oh my gosh, God. that sounds delicious. Well, they only had one bathroom, so <laughs> it was always in use. But, um, well, my okay. grandmother
1: only had one bathroom, too, but it was a little apartment. And the thing I remember most about her kitchen was how clean the stove was. I mean, that woman scrubbed and scrubbed that stove. In fact, she scrubbed it so much that all the numbers on the dial, because you had the old <laughs> dial to turn the oven on, the numbers that did, whether you're at 300 or 350, they were all gone. They were all mm-hmm. wiped off from cleaning. Mm-hmm. And so the way she turned the oven on is you turn that dial all the way till it stops mm-hmm. one direction and that's on and you turn it all the way the other way to the (laughs) subs, and that's off. So everything got cooked at basically 500 degrees. And I remember once asking her, she was making like a meatloaf or something, and she was like checking in, and it's like, oh, it's done. I'm like, oh, how do you know when it's done, Grandma? When there's no more juice. That was her answer. Oh. So we always knew. I was glad she always served salad before dinner. Never finish your salad, because you want to keep it in front of you so that you could dip your meat in the dressing left in your bowl to be able to get it down. Yeah, we had very
0: different experiences. I mean, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were, well, to put it crassly, they were quite poor. And it was very poor Southern food. And uh, it was good. Don't get me wrong, I mean, there was bacon and eggs and hen and dressing, but there wasn't anything fancy, to say the least, um, because they they just didn't have any money. So it was never for a want of food, but it was just very different, and it's very different lower-class southern cooking.
1: My mother's parents, I think, were willing to try fancier stuff. They didn't keep kosher like my father's parents did, although... My grandmother's my mother's mother's idea of kosher was a separate pan for the bacon <laughs> because my grandfather <laughs> insisted. About, I think she would have kept kosher if he hadn't, you know, said, no, we're eating no right, right, right. But she, So there was a separate pan for the bacon, um, but she... Bought brisket and she bought high-end food and she bought veal chops. She just wow, did veal chops. That she, would have been veal shoulder of. veal shoulder chops. Okay, and she would grind up Special K cereal oh. and she would coat the veal chops in Special oh. K cereal and put them in a nine by thirteen pan in oh. the oven until there was no more juice. Oh, so she bought high-end food and then destroyed it. Oh, basically. oh my gosh, no. <laughs>
0: That's not that's not my childhood memories at all. We had a big potato patch at my great-grandparents' farm, and I was responsible for weeding that patch, and it always scared the crap out of me when I was six and seven years old because it was just full of snakes. And, you know, the potatoes are now bent, the plants bend over and the potatoes grow underground. Yeah, I'm sure you know this, how potatoes blossom and then bend over and the plants grow underground and yada, yada, you know, like the tubers and that they are. Anyway, but that patch was always just full of snakes, but but... but it was my job to hoe and weed it out there and, man, and drag giant buckets of water from the farmhouse out to that potato plot. But then they would, my uh, uncle, great-uncle, my great-uncle actually, would come through with a tractor and dig it all up, and then we would all go out to that, Plot. Even my great aunt, who looked like Grace Kelly, <laughs> my we'd all stand. You have to picture Grace Kelly at a potato plot, and we would pick the potatoes out of the soil. And uh, it was just a thing. You have to picture my great aunt Ruth, with her big giant. Four carat diamond rings, picking, picking uh, potatoes out of the soil. Then you get the whole and the peroxide
1: blonde hair done yes. up. Oh, absolutely!
0: <laughs> That's exact with the with the uh, glasses that had the little chippy rhinestones and the points on the ends. Out uh, in the potato field. Out in the potato
1: field. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we we didn't have that. No, we had well done meatloaf and oh. and overcooked everything. But, yeah,
0: no, yeah. that wasn't my. Yeah, no, no, uh, <laughs> that wasn't my experience at all growing up. My grandparents cooked really well, and they cooked differently, again, um, a little more high-class on my mom's side than my dad's side because of money, just because of having
1: it. Hey, if you've got stories about your grandparents and food that's really fun, join us at Cooking with Bruce and Mark on Facebook. Tell us what your grandparents' food memories are. We would love to hear about it.
0: Before we get to our next one-minute cooking tip segment of this podcast, let me say that we have a newsletter, and it is going out again. It would be great if you subscribe to that newsletter. You can do that by going to our website, bruceandmark.com, or cookingwithbruceandmark.com. It all goes to the same place. You'll find there a place to register for the newsletter. Again, I can't see your email, and I can't see your name, so I have no way to capture it or sell it. You can be assured that it's private. I locked it from my view and you can always unsubscribe at any moment at the bottom of any newsletter. We'd love to have you along on that journey, which is separate from this journey on our podcast. So up next, our
1: one-minute cooking tip. Boost your spices' flavoring power by adding them to a hot pan with some oil or butter. Till you fry them, you sizzle them a little, and it brings out their flavor. If you're sauteing onions or browning meat, Add them to the pan afterwards. Before you add liquid to scrape it up, that little bit of sautéing of your spices will boost their flavoring power. And
0: we're particularly talking here about spices and dried herbs, right? We're not necessarily talking about fresh herbs. Not we're talking, about fresh herbs. We're talking, dried, we're talking things yeah. in a bottle.
1: That's right. Dried and, things. Dried sp- coriander, yeah. cumin, cloves, all of that kind of stuff.
0: Right. Exactly. If you brown something and then you pull it out, as Bruce says, and then put the spices in before you add your wine, that just tends seconds over the heat will absolutely make them all taste much better okay up next bruce's interview with carla salinari she's the author of abuela's
1: plant-based kitchen today i am really excited to be speaking with carla salinari she is a certified holistic health coach who inspired by her upbringing in two culinary worlds vegetarian and Puerto Rican, has just written a fantastic new book, Abuela's Plant-Based Kitchen, Vegan Cuisine Inspired by Latin and Caribbean Family Recipes. Welcome, Carla.
2: Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. It's such a pleasure.
1: Uh, You write in your book that food was always a place of joy for you, but being pregnant with your daughter was the start of a new relationship with food. So tell me about that journey.
2: Yes, so in the Latin community, as I'm sure I share this story with many other cultures, food is what connects us to tradition, love, your family, and growing up in a Puerto Rican household, food was always around. Not always the healthiest type of food, but you know, for many people, you grow up with this emotional connection to food. It brings you joy, it brings you comfort. And as an adult living on my own, not really knowing my way around the kitchen um, as I do now, I had a very unhealthy relationship with food where I would turn to food when I was sad or when I missed home. And- And it wasn't until I was pregnant with my daughter that I decided I really need to take control over my relationship with food, not only for myself, because I have to be on this earth for a very long time, but also because I wanted to pave the way for her and teach her different ways so that food didn't become such an emotional thing for her, even though it is beautiful to have somewhat of an emotional connection, but when it becomes an unhealthy emotional connection. And that's something that I didn't really want to transfer over to her. I wanted to teach her that it's really important to have a healthy relationship with food.
1: And was it difficult to build this new relationship with food within the context of this latin american cuisine which you just said can often be fairly unhealthy
2: so i have a very interesting story and probably not one that is very common in the latin community so my dad has been vegan since the 70s before veganism plant-based eating was as popular as it is today so i have always been around that world right i didn't necessarily Mm. care to implement that for myself and for my family. But I definitely wanted to find something that had a bit m- less rigid structure and was easier for me and my family to follow. So when I decided to go to nutrition school and kind of start my own journey, I did have that foundation from my father. Now, when I was born, I was born vegan. And my, pl- my parents split when I was really young. My mom my mom remarried and I went back to that conventional way of eating, slowly on my own, I started to realize I kind of identify more with the holistic approach that my father introduced me to and not so much to the conventional lifestyle that I was living with my mother and my stepfather. So it's interesting and I would say shaped me into who I am today and what I promote because I think a lot of people can identify with my story in the sense that- I've had my feet in both worlds and I have chosen to create a blend between the two that is easier to follow and that really does promote health in a healthy Mm -hmm. way without sacrificing the foods that bring us so much joy, our traditional flavors, which is what brought us to this project, really.
1: Yeah. And your book is full, as you say, healthy, holistic dishes that are really good for you, but it's also for people to enjoy classic Latin American dishes. So it's easy to forget sometimes the healthier aspect when you see plantain fritters and Mexican corn salad and sweet potato parfait. So tell me how a dish like sweet potato parfait fits into a healthy diet.
2: Yes. So the idea, the concept behind the sweet potato parfait is to substitute the dairy that traditionally is used to make a parfait. A traditional parfait recipe is usually a mix of a layer of yogurt, a layer of granola and toppings of fruits, right? So what I did is that I replaced the yogurt, which is dairy, and I replaced it with a delicious blend of sweet potato and fruit and topped it with some granola. So that's the healthy twist on it. I call this approach flipping these conventional recipes and turning them into healthier alternatives that are entirely plant-based. And Bruce, it's not about restricting. It's about finding different ways that we can incorporate these fun foods, but making them work for us. And this is a perfect example.
1: Yeah. You have an eggplant parm recipe in your book that is just as surprising. And you say in the head note that you thought eggplant parm was gone from your plant-based diet and people have to realize eggplant parm has got cheese, it's also fried and could be greasy. So how did you manage to, as you say, flip? This classic (laughs) comfort food from an oily, dairy-based dish to something healthier, but still so delicious.
2: So my husband is of Italian descent, and eggplant parm is a really popular dish in his family. And Joe, my husband, and I worked really hard at recreating this recipe. And in doing so, we realized as long as you're using panko, which is a Japanese breadcrumb, it's thicker and it's heartier, it's sturdier, and we eliminate the egg. If you use unflavored, unsweetened plant milk, you can use oat, you can use almond, you can use rice, and you dip the eggplant in this liquid substance and you bread it using the panko, and then you put it in the oven, you can get that breaded texture and and taste without dipping the eggplant in egg. So, and then we put it in the oven or we put it in the air fryer. And what you have is these crispy pieces of eggplant that when combined with a homemade marinara sauce, which we also include in the book. And it's my husband's family recipe. And then we add some tofu ricotta cheese, which we added fresh basil. And we added all these Italian spices and really gave it that taste and feel of ricotta cheese. I like to call these wow dishes, right? It's like, wow, this is made with no egg and no cheese, and it's not fried, and it's delicious, and it's, you know, something that you can feel comfortable giving to your family, not only on special occasions, right, but any time of the week.
1: Tell me about pickled green bananas. Uh, and why did you choose bananas for this salad in your book instead of yucca or plantains?
2: So guineitos en escabeche, which is the recipe that you're referring to, is a very popular and traditional recipe in Puerto Rico, traditionally made during the holidays. And what it is, it's the smaller, very ripe plantains that are not sweet yet. So they're smaller in size, And when you boil them and you cool them, and then you make what is called an escabeche, which is, it's a pickling sauce. And it's made with olive oil and onions. You can use red or white and peppercorns and a citrus. Then you combine all that together and, Bruce, the longer it sits in the refrigerator, the more delicious it is. So not only is this recipe a really delicious cold salad that you can have during the the spring and summer months, so it's like a double whammy. It's delicious and it's good for us. And that's what we want.
1: Hey, Carla, you combine two of my favorite things in the world in one dish in your book. I love ropa vieja, usually a shredded, pulled, braised flank steak, And you combine that with king oyster mushrooms. Also, one of my favorite things. Tell me about this dish and why it works so well.
2: Okay, so I was raised by my mom and my stepfather who was Cuban. And I was raised part-time in Miami, part-time in Puerto Rico. So I was exposed to the Cuban culture very much growing up. And ropa vieja, as you know, is a traditional Cuban dish. And I wanted to simulate textures, I wanted to find texture of the flank steak, which is traditionally used to make ropa vieja, and find a plant-based substitute. And during this time, I was seeing in mainstream media that they were using these king oyster mushrooms or trumpet mushrooms to make pulled pork in barbecue recipes or sloppy joe recipes. And I thought, wait a minute, This could be a delicious substitute for the ropa vieja, and sure enough, but I'll teach you a little trick. And a lot of people are turned off by the texture of mushrooms. And the reason for that is because it absorbs a lot of moisture. But yeah. if you shred the mushrooms and you put them in the oven to cook for about 15 minutes, you remove the moisture and the shreds of mushroom hold its texture. And you can then incorporate them into this recipe. The rest of the recipe, the rest of the ingredients, is how my mother would traditionally make the ropa So there's lots of. Pepper peppers, lots of onions, there's white wine, there's olives, there's capers, there's tomato, there's oregano, bay leaf. So all the other flavors that come in this dish are infused in the mushrooms and it works so well.
1: I have to go back to fritters again, corn fritters. Okay. Where did the inspiration for the corn fritters come from? And how do you manage to make a fritter that's sweet, crispy, and delicious and yet healthy.
2: Okay, so in Puerto Rico, we call these sorullitos de maíz. It's a very easy recipe that many people make at all times of the day because it's also budget friendly. What you do with the corn is that you heat it up, and then you turn it into a dough, and you can add a tiny bit of brown sugar or coconut palm sugar. And what you do is you mold it into these fritters that you can then add some vegan cheese or completely omit the vegan cheese if you're not into that processed food. And what you do is that you can either put them in the air fryer or you can fry them in avocado oil or olive oil. And it's a really delicious treat that everybody loves. I mean, everybody loves sorullitos de maiz. It's such a great Puerto Rican staple.
1: I love that you refer to it as a treat because right. I do think it's important that some things be treated like they're special. And also that it's okay to fry it in a little bit of healthy oil because even that has a place in a healthy diet.
2: It's important to highlight, Bruce, that We don't have to restrict ourselves all the time. And I often promote this. And it's if 90% of your meals are made with whole plant based foods, then you can allow yourself this 10% of, you know, playing in the, in the sandbox. Like I call this like my, my play, my play time. Right. And, and, and this is the time that 10% is the time where you can make things like these corn fritters and not feel guilty because you're eating something that brings you joy and that you really enjoy, but you're obviously not going to be frying corn fritters every day of the week, but in moderation, it's a really delicious treat and you don't have to make it the traditional way, which is with, cheese, and refined uh, sugar.
1: So continuing that theme of something that's a treat, your book does have some amazing desserts. So if you had to choose a dessert among your collection that'll satisfy even the most picky sweet tooth, what would that be?
2: Oh, this is a tough one, Bruce, a tough (laughs) one. Um, I would say that the coconut flan, which is a coconut custard recipe, is a hit every single time for many reasons. One, because we are not using any cow milk and we're not using any refined sugar or egg. What we're using to give the flan that custard texture, that gelatinous feel and taste is agar agar, which is derived from seaweed. And it works to give the desserts and the foods that that consistency without having to add egg to it. And it's just the flavors of the coconut milk and the maple syrup and, and the caramel custard, uh, the caramel sauce that goes over it is really such a delight because a little goes a long way and it satisfies that sweet craving and you don't feel guilty or heavy after eating it, I would say that that is my favorite recipe and one that I love to and to share with my guests or anybody that tries these recipes.
1: In the end, I want to ask you something that a lot of people might not know about, and it's coquito. So in the book, you call it Puerto Rican eggnog. And since most non-Latin Americans don't know about it, tell me about it.
2: Yes. So coquito is... Best described as Puerto Rican eggnog. So it's a creamy, milky type of drink that is oftentimes served with alcohol, and we consume it during the holidays. And it's a different countries in Latin and the in Latin America and the Caribbean share a very um similar recipe. So it's interesting. In Cuba, they call it crema de vie because it's made with egg yolks. And in Venezuela, they call it romponche. So every culture has a different way of making their eggnog. In Puerto Rico, we make it with condensed milk, coconut milk, cow milk, and you then add as much or as little rum as you want. And it (laughs) stays in the refrigerator for as long as it will last during the holidays. But for this recipe, I substituted the condensed milk for soaked cashews, which in plant-based and vegan cooking is a really great way to give your dessert or your dishes a creamy consistency without the lactose. So this recipe uses the soaked cashews and coconut milk, coconut cream, and then a non-dairy milk. You can use rice or, or almond milk, and then it's sweetened with maple syrup because maple syrup gives it that sweet taste and it doesn't spike your blood sugars levels as much. And now I don't want to say that my Puerto Rican eggnog is a health food. It's definitely not, especially if you're adding two cups of rum like my grandmother used to, and that's what we added to the recipe. But it's a really nice treat, especially for people who are intolerant to lactose. And if you wanted to have that treat without the added artificial ingredients or refined ingredients. This is a really great one.
1: Well, it goes back to that 10%. And but yes. most of your book is filled with things you can eat every day recipes that are both inspired by your Latin American heritage and your healthy outlook on food. Uh, Carla Sarinari, your new book, Abuela's Plant Based Kitchen, full of fantastic recipes. Thank you so much for sharing them and sharing some insight with me about it today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, Bruce.
1: It's just part
0: of a trend, this plant-based kitchen stuff, right? I mean, it's like a huge trend and it's a trend that I absolutely approve of. Um, I'm not, oh God, here we go. (laughs) I'm not giving out my T-bone. But at the same time, I want to cut down on the number of T-bones I eat, to say the least. So it's just a trend that I think that Gen Z and uh, now they call them early millennials, right? Or youngster millennials. <laughs> not yeah, I love that they now say geriatric
1: millennials. If you're 40, but you're a geriatric it, it basically,
0: millennial. Basically, Gen Z and younger millennials are leading this trend. And I, I am so happy to follow them down this trend of more plant-based cooking. I absolutely love it. Now, before we get to the last segment of our podcast, let me say that it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you could rate it, do all those things. It really helps us out in the end and it keeps the podcast working because otherwise we are unsupported except by you. I sound like a PBS ad.
1: <laughs> we are unsupported except by you. But we're not asking you to support us financially, at least no. not right now. We're asking just <laughs> for a good rating. We just subscribe and give us a rating and that's right. that's what we're asking for. That would be terrific. Okay, our final segment
0: as these traditional What's making us happy in food this week?
1: Kale Caesar salad. Oh, God! I go through my phases <laughs> where that's all I want to eat and I make Mark eat kale Caesar salads I every single it. day. So last night, well, I, yesterday I was out running errands and I ran by a Whole Foods and I went in and they had this Beautiful red kale, and it was tender, and it was young-looking, and I slivered it up, and I made a Caesar dressing with an egg yolk and good olive oil, and anchovies, and garlic, and a little dijon, and that was. Del- we had that for dinner last night with some grilled sockeye salmon we from did. Butcher Box. And boy, that was a nice dinner. And what's
0: making me happy in food this week is something that almost never happens at our house anymore, and used to happen a lot, and that is we got to eat appetizing this week. Now, (laughs) if you don't know what appetizing is, that means you haven't been around Jewish culture enough, but I married into it. Appetizing refers to, uh, what, herring, smoked salmon, whitefish salad, salmon spread, salmon salad. Bagels. Bagels, Mm -hmm. cream, cheese. This is all appetizing. In fact, when I moved in with Bruce years ago in the... The mid-90s, I heard about this thing called an appetizing store. And I thought, what in the world? Is- aren't store supposed to be appetizing (laughs) i mean what what does that mean a food store that's non-appetizing but then i discovered oh what you mean is a bagel cream cheese smoked salmon store Mm -hmm. that's what you mean by so bruce was teaching knitting in a boston suburb this last weekend and as he drove back toward us you pass a big new york style kosher style it's not kosher kosher style
1: r-e-i-n-s rains Deli deli
0: in vernon In Vernon, Connecticut And he stopped and picked up Tons of appetizing So much that we had herring and smoked salmon And whitefish salad And sable Sable. Oh gosh, you just don't know what it is If you haven't had it Um, We picked up (laughs) sable and we had that for two nights running It was astounding
1: Mm, delicious
0: it was really delicious they had great pickles you bet cucumber salad and
1: we drank a petnat an Italian petnat with it a sparkling wine it was a delicious couple of nights so that was
0: was a good thing to make you happy it is a good thing so that's our podcast for this week thanks for being on this journey with us we appreciate your taking the time to listen to this podcast because there
1: are after all so many podcasts out there and please go to our Facebook group Cooking with Bruce and Mark share your grandmother food memories what's making you happy with food this week and then come back for another episode of cooking with bruce and mark